And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. And it's great to be with you today. Yes, uh, starting off, brand new year, 2023. And, uh, boy, it's going to take me a while to get used to saying that date. Usually, I I get the date down sometime around mid-December. So, so right when I figure out what the right year is, the year changes. But nevertheless, it's great to be with you today, especially today. Today is the feast of the holy name of Jesus. And indeed, you know, the holy name of Jesus is something that uh, I'm not sure a lot of Catholics have pondered. And it's packed with meaning and uh, very deep meaning indeed. We've gone over a little bit on this program when we were talking about the prophet Zechariah and some prophetic uh, passages concerning the coming of the Savior and the name of Jesus. And so that's what we're going to dive into today. We're going to look at uh, the roots, the biblical roots, and uh, some interesting thoughts concerning the holy name of Jesus with our good friend Matt Swain from the Coming Home Network. That's what we're going to be doing, doing on the other side of the break, is uh, dive into that. So that's going to be, it's always fun to have Matt, but it's going to be a really fun episode to uh, to dive in deep into such a beautiful subject as the holy name of Jesus. So that's what's coming up, folks, on the other side of the break, or on this side of the break. We are going to do what we always do. We're going to sharpen our critical thinking skills with the Finding the Fallacy segment. Today's Finding the Fallacy is the False Dilemma Fallacy. And we also meet an early church father. Today's early church father is not an individual. In fact, the focus really isn't even on the author, but rather on the subject. It's a work called The Martyrdom of St. Polycarp. In fact, it's the oldest extent uh, authentic account of a martyrdom outside of course, the Bible. So Polycarp, as you know, very important apostolic father, especially in apologetics, defending the faith. And uh, by the way, the martyrdom of Polycarp is just as valuable of a resource in apologetics as well. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, maybe read a few quotes from the martyrdom. And before we do all that, I want to welcome all of you to the show. So welcome aboard, everybody, all of you listening on radio around the country, and of course, the live Stream peeps out there. Howdy. Great to have you with us. And for all of you listening around the world and in the future via podcast, great to have you all on board. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, By the way, as I always say, podcast is there. It's a great tool. You know, the Internet is a tool that we need to utilize as Catholics, especially defenders of the faith, not just for research but for evangelization. And this is a great example, is podcast. If there is a subject that maybe somebody is interested in, maybe you're in a Bible study with non-Catholics who are Christians. I don't know why there would be non-Christians at a Bible study, but anyway. Uh, and 
the name Jesus comes up, this might be a great show to share with them because we're going to dive into the name of Jesus. How do you do that? Well, it's very simple. If you have the phone app, you can access the show that way. Or you can go to our flagship website, which is virginmostpowerfulradio.org. And uh, just scroll down to Hands-On Apologetics or any of the other great shows that Virgin Most Powerful produces. And boom, you got it all right there, folks. And uh, the programs usually are uploaded very quickly. The crew at Virgin Most Powerful Radio is very diligent. And they get the, the shows up and running pretty quick on podcast. So you can share it with people and uh, share it with parishioners. And who knows, maybe we can expand our audience and help more people learn how to explain and defend the faith with clarity, charity, and confidence. also want to give the official Dojo mailbox, as I do every episode. It is questions at handsonapologetics.com. That is questions at handsonapologetics.com. It comes directly to me. And yes, I am behind. <laughs> I, 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 God willing, I will catch up. I really feel bad because I I was scrolling some through some of the emails I haven't had a chance to respond to, and there's Christmas greetings, and New Year's greetings, and and show rec or guest recommendations, show recommendations, questions. I just haven't got enough time to to get around to it, but I promise I will. I promise I will by God's grace. I will catch up on my emails. So if you sent an email in. Know that I've received it, and I will get back to you ASAP. It's just uh, things, uh, we just got to iron some stuff out here at the world, it's not the world headquarters, what am I saying? At the Midwest Command Center, world headquarters runs like a uh, a top, you know, but the Midwest Command Center could get a little messy. All right, so uh, let's go to our Finding the Fallacy for today. The Finding the Fallacy is the False Dilemma Fallacy. False dilemma fallacy is also referred to as a false dichotomy or false binary. It is an uh, informal fallacy based on a premise that erroneously limits what options are available. The source of this fallacy lies not in an invalid form of inference, but in a false premise. So false dilemmas... You know, let's put this in layman's terms. Sometimes definitions can be helpful, but sometimes it makes it a little difficult to see what's going on uh, behind a particular fallacy. False dilemma is where someone basically makes something into an either-or that could potentially be a both-and. And of all the fallacies that we have on the show, I think this is probably the most predominant one if you're talking to a Protestant. Uh, Protestantism always has this principle of uh, opposition. They often place things in opposition to one another, like uh, nature versus grace, or uh, God-centered versus man-centered, things like that, that could potentially actually, and are, uh, complementary, right? It's nature is uh, uh, perfected by grace. It's lifted up by grace, uh, God's work is done through human work by his grace again, you know. So uh, Catholics, Catholic theology and the Catholic worldview tends to unify uh, things where Protestant theology tends to set things into opposition. 
And in other words, you'll encounter a lot of false di- uh, dilemmas when talking about the Protestant. So you should always keep in the back of mind, if someone says either it's this or that, just try to think in your back of mind, is it possible to come up with an, uh, an example where it doesn't necessarily have to be either or, that it could be both in. And I found that to be very helpful, working through these type of things with people. And that is our Finding the Fallacy for today, the False Dilemma Fallacy. Okay, let's meet our early church father for today. And like I said, it's not an individual. It's really just a work. The Martyrdom of St. Polycarp. Martyrdom of St. Polycarp is the oldest extent detailed and authentic account of a martyrdom. That is outside of the, the Bible, of course. In the form of a letter to the from the Church of Smyrna to the Christian community in Philo uh, Millennium uh, in Greater Phrygia, over the signature of an otherwise unknown Marcion, it is the most precious document, and even after 1,800 years, it's only a singularly implacable person can read it without tears, says Jurgen's Faith Early Fathers. So that's quite a statement coming from a patrologist. And so uh, why is this important for apologetics? Well, because within this uh, current uh, martyrdom, there's lots of very interesting details about the faith of the earliest Christians. As you know, well, I should probably, uh, for those who aren't familiar with Bishop Polycarp, he was Bishop of Smyrna. He was a disciple of St. John the Apostle. <coughs> so he lived very early on. He was a hero of the Apostles. He was a early bishop in Smyrna. And he also, he died a martyr, as this document uh, tells us. Uh, so he also wrote a letter to the church in Philadelphia, no, uh, to the Church of Philippi, excuse me, which we have and is now extant. And he also received a letter from another apostolic father, another disciple of uh, John the Apostle, who is Ignatius of Antioch. So uh, this is the martyrdom of someone who was a disciple of the apostles, knew the apostles, was a bishop, probably appointed by the apostles or with their oversight, and his martyrdom. So let's read a little bit from it. First, the greeting, the Church of God, which sojourns in Smyrna, to the Church of God that so near, sojourns in Philomelium, and all the dioceses of the Holy and Catholic Church in every place. May mercy, peace, and love of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ be with you in abundance. So here we have an instance of the Holy and Catholic Church. Uh, so you have this sense of the Catholicity of the church. Let's see. Um, interesting one. In section 9 of the Martyrdom Polycarp, when the proconsul urged them and said, Take the oath and I will release you. Revile Christ. Polycarp answered, 86 years I have served him, and, I have, and he has never done me wrong. How then should I be able to blaspheme my king who has saved me. Now, the interesting factoid here is that Polycarp is 86 years old, or thereabouts. <coughs> so he counts himself a Christian as an infant. So we have uh, a pointer to infant baptism. All right, so that is our early church father for today, martyrdom of St. Polycarp. Coming up next, 
Matt Swain. We're going to be talking about the holy name of Jesus. Stay tuned. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. Hands-On Apologetics. And it's the Feast of the Holy Name of Jesus. And I'm pleased to announce that we're going to be talking about that with our good friend Matt Swain. Matt, as you knew, grew up in a strong Christian family, attended United Methodist, Nazarene, Free Methodist congregations along the way, discovered G.K. Chesterton, and the rest is history. He's now Catholic, and he's been working in Catholic radio for nearly a decade, probably now maybe even over a decade. Uh, he works as a content coordinator for the Coming Home Network. You can check out his stuff at chnetwork.org. And he has a fantastic show called On the journey with Matt and Ken. And here he is, folks, the one, the only, Matt Sway. Hi, Matt. Gary Machuda, Merry Christmas. How are you? M- Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Doing well. So, yes. Is it still Matt and Ken, or is it Matt, Ken, and Kenny? Or Well, it's Matt and Ken and Kenny right now. So okay. uh, we figured this could be pretty interesting if we talk to a Protestant pastor in this ongoing dialogue about various politics issues, but it could be even more interesting if we talked to two at the same time. So since we got Ken Hensley, the Baptist pastor and Kenny Burchard, the Pentecostal pastor, both became Catholic on staff. It's, it's been kind of fun and interesting. So, yeah, yeah no, no doubt. Well, I mean, the, the Matt and Ken show was interesting in and of itself because you're more from the holiness camp, uh, I don't want to say probably more moderate uh, Protestant theology, I guess, compared to Ken, who is Calvinist, which is more hardline, you know, conservative. Well, it's interesting. You know, both hardline in their own ways. The holiness movement is not something that uh, takes Christianity very lightly. As a matter of fact, it's very revivalistic. And what's what's interesting is that, you know, the Calvinists, they're the once saved, always saved, can't lose your salvation, you know, unconditional election stuff we were the people in the holiness movement that like uh you smoke one cigarette you're going to hell kind of people i mean we were not the once saved always saved types so yeah it was very <laughs> it's it it's been kind of fun and then of course you throw kenny burchard in the mix yeah the pentecostal yeah uh you know and it's it's, a, yeah, it's, so, a, it's an amazing thing that we don't just break a bunch of stuff every episode yeah so he's he's from the holiness camp as well but charismatic mm-hmm. holiness which I don't believe, uh, well, United Methodist, maybe there are charismatics with United Methodists and, and others. There are, but, I mean, this is a little bit more backstory than probably people care to know, but I was in the Church of the Nazarene in the Wesleyan Holiness Movement, and let me just tell you, there was what we called aisle running and hanky waving and people getting caught with the Spirit, but speaking in tongues was a no-no. Okay. Speaking in tongues was an out, whereas... In Pentecostal context, there's all the aisle running and hanky waving, but speaking in tongues is a confirmation that you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. So, yeah, it's it's weird. You know, when we say that there's 30,000 kinds of Protestant, um, they fall in weird little lines like that, where they like might all look alike from, you know, 100 feet away, but you get up close and you realize, wow, these people who like yell and scream don't like these other people who yell and scream. It's weird, exactly. but it's true. Yeah, and then you have the Calvinist camp where the hankies are mainly from. They don't like either one of us. Yeah. <laughs> ex- 
exactly. That's why I, it's a cool group. I, I love the way all three of you are together discussing issues because you, you, you know, now you have like a three-dimensional view of different yeah. points of view. And, and, a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. And talk about good stuff. I mean, it doesn't get any better than Jesus, right? Yeah. Uh, today, the Feast of the Holy Name of Jesus. And if there's one thing that um, that Ken, the Baptist, and would have, Ken would have agreed with this for sure, but I can tell you that absolutely uh, it was the case in my Nazarene holiness context, and it was most certainly the case in Kenny's Pentecostal context, is that there's power in the name, right? The power in the name of Christ. Um, this is borne out throughout um, the scriptures in a bunch of different ways that I want to get into, but I, I wanted to kind of start by thinking about um, the idea of naming in general, um, because it comes up uh, very early on. Uh, I mean, well, in a few different ways, but one one of the ways um, is that God starts naming stuff as He begins to create things, uh, which is a, a sign of His dominion over them. Right? He calls, you know this day and he calls it this night and he calls it the sun and the moon and 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 um that sort of thing but when it comes to the creation of adam and the garden of eden he tells adam to start naming stuff uh which is an interesting move by god who has named everything else up to this point to tell adam to go and name all the animals um now that doesn't mean that we call them elephants because Adam called them elephants, right? <laughs> I mean, th what it means is that Adam was given a certain kind of dominion uh, over everything else that had been created up to that point, uh, right? Uh, especially everything that was moving and breathing and crawling along the ground and swimming in the sea and flying in the air. So um, naming is a, is a sign of dominion. Interestingly enough, um, this is one of the reasons that the church discourages people naming their guardian angels uh, because, uh, you know, there are some people who, you know, have, have, you know, come up with nicknames or whatever the guardian angels. I, and I don't do it uh, because I've read the church's thinking on this and, and I realized, you know, why, why the church does this this way. And that is because you don't have power over your guardian angel. Only God is over your guardian angel, right? This is a helper and an aid you don't have that authority, that dominion over them to name them. Uh, you don't have that power um, over over them and dominion. So uh, it is kind of interesting. Um, it's it's also interesting to see throughout uh, the scriptures how name changes factor into so many things. Um, you got Abram becomes Abraham. It's an indication of his new uh, role uh, as the father of nations. Same with Sarah. Um getting her new name. She had been Sarai. Um, you, you've got, you know, Peter getting named, uh, right. He's Simon. Uh, but then he is called rock. Uh, it's an indication of his new mission. Um, Saul changes his own name, right. From Saul to Paul, uh, as a kind of an indication of some interesting things that's, that have been going through, um, you know, in his role and his vocation. So naming is interesting, uh, in a, in a lot of ways in scripture. Um, and, and I mean, if you look at the, the way that people get their names, I mean, like, I mean, you talk about Abraham and Isaac, uh, we were talking about Abram and Sarah and, and, you know, they were very old and didn't think they could have children. And, uh, then 
turns out that they get these messengers that tell them that they're going to have a child and Sarah hears it from outside the tent and laughs and they come out and convict her of that. And she said, no, I wasn't laughing. And they said, no, you were laughing. And well, later on when she is pregnant and they have a child, the child is named Isaac, which means laughter, right? So it is, <laughs> um, I mean, there's something in the names of these, these biblical figures. Like uh, even when you see, um, names that end in E-L, right? Uh, Ezekiel, right? Uh, Joel. Um, that is kind of like a shortened way of putting Elohim at the end of somebody's name. It's the same way that Elijah, uh, A-H, or um, Isaiah, A-H, uh, at the end of someone's name is is like putting part of Yahweh in somebody's name. Um, and this is this is the case throughout um, throughout the scriptures that these that you don't just name somebody because you think a word sounds cool like there's there's a power in it there's like a mission in it and very often um, there are ways that that whatever it is that this person is named ends up being connected to whatever this person ends up doing for God along the way yeah yeah in a, in a way it's kind of like the name is the mission you know and sometimes it's a good mission sometimes it isn't you know uh, uh, for example, Jacob, that means usurper and yeah. he usurps. I think it means brother. literally heel grabber, right? I mean, like, yeah, exactly. I'm yeah. going to grab you by the heel and trip you. <laughs> and yeah. I'm going to take your place. And he does, but figuratively, you know, and, uh, so you can learn a lot about a person and their, their place in God's plan through their name. Yeah, and even with the case of Jesus, right, um, it's uh, a, a rendering of the word uh, Yeshua, Joshua, right, um, which is, you know, a, a name that references saving, right, that is a, a saving um, mission. So even in Christ's name, uh, in some ways it's his name, in some ways it's his mission. I mean, we'll look at Peter, too, right? Um, in, it's not just a name change. It's an indication of his role. It's almost like a title that he's given as part of a part of a name change. Peter, Cephas, uh, or Cephas, um, rock, right? You're gonna, I'm going to build on you. Um, right. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, especially when God changes it, you know, because that, that usually signals a a change in direction or like a divine commission for a mission. Um, in fact, uh, I, you know, the Hail Mary, we often think of the angels greeting as Hail Mary, full of grace, like we pray. But actually in Greek, he calls her full of grace. That is her yeah. name and her mission. You know, she is the one who has been graced. Yeah, it's a title, right? Yeah. Um, that, that That's... Uh, it, what's what's interesting too um, is how often God calls somebody by name, or has an angel call somebody by name, or Jesus calls somebody by name, and it sort of is a it's an attention getting moment. Uh, you'll notice that in both the Annunciation from Luke's Gospel, which is given to Mary, and the Annunciation from Matt uh, from yeah Matthew's Gospel, where the Annunciation is given to Joseph, in both cases, the angel says their name. Yeah. Right. Uh, in Luke's gospel, uh, Gabriel addresses Mary. He says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Uh, in Matthew's gospel, uh, it says, Joseph, do not be afraid, Joseph, son of David. Uh, not just Joseph's name, but Joseph's great-great-great-great-great-granddaddy's name is, <laughs> is part of the address. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, uh, it, it's, 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 a, it's a thing that we, have, I think, take fairly lightly, but... 
Um, when you think about this this question of authority and this this meaning of names, I mean, who names your kids? I mean, you do as a parent, right? It's a sign of authority. It's a sign of dominion. It's a sign of you kind of exercising some role over them, right? You don't say, oh, we're not going to name our kid. We're going to wait till it's old enough and let it decide what its name is. No, of course not, right? Right. You name your child and you name it um, sometimes after a TV character you like, but it's because that TV character meant something to you. Often you name it after a grandparent or an uncle or someone who is important to you in your life. Perhaps you uh, pick what day on the calendar it is and see whose feast, and then you name it after that saint. I mean, there's... There's a there's a thought process that goes into it. I know I know people whose names are a combination between their dad and mom's middle names, <laughs> you know. But it's mm-hmm. some there's some meaning in it, and there's some authority that's given when you give someone a name. Yeah, yeah, and I know there was a the church really encouraged uh, Catholic parents to name their children after saints. You know that unfortunately that's kind of gone away a little bit, but I think it was a beautiful practice, especially if. You know, the name kind of says a little bit about the mission of the person. What better way to set them on the right path than name them after a saint? Give them a holy friend to start things off. Exactly. Exactly. Well, we're chatting with Matt Swaim, talking about the holy name of Jesus. More to come right after this. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with Matt Swaim of Coming Home Network. Check out his stuff at chnetwork.org. And we're talking about the holy name of Jesus and going into a little bit of a biblical background of giving names and changing names. And uh, with Jesus, you actually have a prediction about giving his name. Yeah. Isaiah 7. Um, yeah, is that I believe it says uh, his name will be called Emmanuel, right? Mm-hmm. Um which is weird because that's not what he ends up being named, right? Yeah. Um, but it it does, uh, I mean, Emmanuel literally means God with us, right? Um, that, uh, I mean, this is this is essentially what, you know, what's happening in, in the Annunciation is that, um, you know, God is with us, right? Incarnate in the, in the womb of Mary um, there in Luke chapter 1. You know, it's interesting. So uh, I would invite people, uh, we're doing... Uh, and we do this every year. Uh, the week of prayer for Christian unity is in January, and uh, we actually have uh, at the Coming Home Network uh, a 15-day devotion uh, to the holy name of Jesus um, with each day uh, focusing on a passage of Scripture um, that references the name of Christ, and, and it's all a prayer for Christian unity. Um, and what's interesting People can go to chnetwork.org slash unity if they want to uh, participate in this. We're going to be doing daily videos um, this year, walking through each of those prayers. But um, there are a whole bunch of places where we see the name of Christ invoked um, and where Christ tells us to invoke his name. But what's interesting is that out of these 15 days, about a third of them come from one section of Jesus's teaching. Um, And that's after... Uh, the well, it's after the Last Supper. Really, it's after the foot washing. Um, is really what we get in John's Gospel, and we get into John chapter fourteen, and Jesus is giving his after dinner 
discourses. A Franciscan um, priest friend of mine um, refers to this as Jesus is, you know, as like the world's longest after dinner speech, right? Jesus is getting ready to go to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to be arrested, but he's giving all these um, instructions to his disciples before that happens. And it's fascinating how many times in the course of these Last Supper addresses, he talks about doing things in his name. So this is in John 14. Um, he's telling them uh, that whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So he's telling people to ask in his name. Um, later on in John 14, it says, the counselor of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. He's telling them that the Holy Spirit is going to be sent in his name. Um, uh, he goes on in John chapter 15, uh, a few verses later, to say, uh, once again, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Um, a chapter later, John 16, still part of the same address, uh, Jesus says, uh, you have sorrow now, but I'll see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask anything of me. Truly I say to you, if you ask anything of the Father, he will give it to you in my name. Still in the same, this is the same talk that Jesus is giving. Um, and then in chapter uh, 17, and this is why uh, it was sort of chosen as this main text for a prayer of Christian unity, is that Jesus has spoken these words. He now lifts his eyes up to heaven and says, you know, Father, the hour has come. Uh, and then he says uh, a few verses later, Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then in verse 20, uh, he says, I don't pray for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, that they may believe that you have sent to me, that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will make it known that the love which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So Jesus this whole time is saying that we should ask in the Father's name, or ask in Christ's name, that the Holy Spirit is coming and he will be sent in Christ's name. Um, he's asking God, the Father, to keep us in his name and keep us one as he and the Father are one. All this stuff um, is really Trinitarian and having to do with names. Well, why is that significant? Well, it's significant for a whole bunch of reasons. But when I read that, the first thing I think of is the is the priest's first speaking part at every mass? What does he say? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, right? Right. Like, what are we doing every time we gather? We're asking in the name of the Father. We're asking in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit. That's how we start things. That's how we end things. We do it all in the name. Well, why do we do it? Well, because that's what Jesus told us to do, right? Right. He spent three or four chapters in John's gospel telling us that we got to do all this in his name. I mean, it's a powerful thing to kind of see it all sort of come together that way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, Jesus's name is the kind of unifying principle, you know, to bring Christians together and even to, to call our minds together for mass, right? Focus on what we're doing. Well, and, and even in that, right, like that's that's connected back to our our, our baptism, because how does 
Jesus end Matthew's gospel, he says, go and make disciples is the Great Commission, right? right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, right? Like that's how you become a Christian. You're claimed in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Like that's your that's your entry point. Um, it, it's it's interesting too. I mean, that's this is. I mean, Ken Hensley has probably joked about this with you before, uh, but that when he he went back and reread the Pentecost sermon, once he started to kind of get things about baptism um, that hadn't really been part of his thinking as a Baptist before, and and reading Peter's sermon uh, after you know, Peter's lighting up the crowd and finally the crowd's like, okay, what do we have to do? This is amazing. And he says, all right, here's what you got to do. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, <laughs> right? For the forgiveness of your sins. He's saying, be baptized in the name. Um, he's directly fulfilling what Jesus told his apostles to do at the end of Matthew's gospel. Right. But that first, the, I mean, bear in mind, again, Jesus has told them in John's gospel, the, the Holy Spirit will be sent in his name. And once that happens, all the pieces are in place. And Peter says, all right, repent and be baptized in the name. Um, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, that's a lot going on. Yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah, I love that way it's, it shows how it's sacramentally anchored, right, with the Trinitarian baptism. Uh because uh, it's not like, well, just confess that Jesus is your Savior and that's it, you know. Uh, no, yeah, they already kind of came to belief that Jesus is the Messiah, but yeah. they still need so now what to be do we baptized do? in the name. Right. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, very good. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting that that's, you know, you may have named your kid before their baptism, right? But in some senses, it's kind of like, the, the name is sort of like announced and presented in a, in a special way when the kid is baptized, right? Uh, it's like you receive your own name formally when you are baptized in the name, uh, you know, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, and, you know, very often, you know, you get people who are, you know, baptized at Easter Vigil and confirmed and, and take a new name then or take a confirmation name uh, then as well. Um, yeah, it's... It, it's you know, your identity, what's your first identity? Your first identity is a baptized Christian, right? And your identity is not like as a Lions fan. I hope not. Uh, oh, you know, that'd be terrible. Yeah. Although, I mean, well, it's yeah, been a better year they, than most. They're doing better. Yeah, that's it's true. Than most. But like your identity is not as like a, you know, I mean, there anything that you want to wrap up your identity in. Your identity, it, it comes from the name, right? It comes from the name in which you've been baptized. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, and boy, you know, just going through in my mind uh, the different Bible passages pertaining to baptism is very explicit, you know. Uh, you know, like when Saul uh, of Tarsus gets struck down and he can't see, it says, you know, uh, go and uh, be baptized calling on his name. Yeah, it says Saul. And you receive. Saul. Yeah. says it twice, right? Why are you persecuting right. me? What about, what about um, when... Mary Magdalene is at the tomb on Easter morning and thinks Jesus is the gardener. How does it that she finally recognizes that he is Jesus Christ risen from the dead? It's when, she, when he says her name. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Very yeah. Good. 
and you know you see some some mysterious stuff at the end of revelation about people being given new names and glory right um you know that there's your there's your name here and then there's your name that you get once it's like your new citizenship name you know in the in the beatific vision um and you know like even when we talk about gabriel and raphael and michael and the, the names of the angels that we have like i mean that's their that's the name that we call them but like you know god gives these you know angelic beings these names that are like sort of beyond our beyond our speech right um there's there's a a, a whole lot more of this um so what's what's interesting too um is that well of course Jesus is the name above all names. Um, Paul talks about uh, this in Philippians chapter two, right? That, um, and this is the great like Philippian hymn where um, he says that uh, Jesus did not count equality with God, something to be grasped at, but made himself, he emptied himself um, taking the form of a slave and being found um, in human form. He humbled himself, became obedient to death on a cross Therefore, God exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, right? That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, right? And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Um, I I remember the first time that I noticed this at a mass, and I didn't, you know, I didn't see it at every mass. I saw it in some Latin masses. I saw it in some Nova Sordo masses, and um, where occasionally at points in the liturgy there would be a mention of you know through christ our lord right um and you would see the priest like slightly bow his head at that point in the liturgy you can see keep an eye out and see if your priest does this from time to time and i had quizzed on the book of philippians as a bible quiz in the church of the nazarene and memorized this passage and loved it deeply but i never thought like what if every time we mention Jesus' name in church, we bowed our heads, right? So it's like, whoa, they actually do this sometimes. <laughs> the Catholic, the, the Catholic yeah. So yeah, I mean, some of that Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. Hands-On Apologetics. We are chatting with Matt Swaim and talking about the holy name of Jesus, looking at biblical background and liturgical connections, sacramental connections. And uh, we were talking about Philippians 2 right before the break, Matt, where uh, Jesus is given a name above all other names that every tongue shall confess, you know, and every knee shall bend. And, of course, that alludes to Isaiah 45, where it's talking, where God says to me, every knee shall bend. And uh, so in a sense, you know, the name he's given is, is Yahweh, right? The Lord himself. Yeah. By the way, a name that you could get in big trouble if you said out loud uh, in ancient Israel, right? right. <clears throat> I mean, God's name so so powerful, so sacred that you weren't even supposed to say it out loud. Um, it would be a form of blasphemy because the name was so so sacred and so special. Um, although uh, there are plenty of allusions to the name of God, even when people aren't saying it. As a matter of fact, uh, I would encourage people to, um, next time you're at Mass, listen to the responsorial psalms and see how many lines uh, in the psalm refer to how um, you know God's name is holy, or we praise your name, or we praise, uh, you know, we glorify your name. Um, that's, uh, that's all over 
uh, the Psalms, references to how great and how awesome the name of God is. Uh, you know, I was thinking, too, um, in preparation for this, of one of the first big miracles in the book of Acts, uh, where Peter uh, and I believe it's John are walking and they see a, a crippled man at one of the gates and he's been begging uh, for alms. And Peter says, I don't have any silver and I don't have any gold, but what I have, I will give to you. And he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he takes him by the hand and raises him up. And then he walks. Um, and here's Peter who's been told that anything who that he asks in Christ's name, you know, will be done. And so Peter takes that command seriously and says, all right, well, I'm going to say in that name, rise and walk, right? And, yeah. and it happens. So um, you have one of the first big miracles, one of the first big healings at the hands of the apostles um, is done in the name of, of Christ. But again, it's also a you know, a reminder that it's not Peter healing under his own power, right? He's healing in the power of the name. Um, uh, when they get arrested, by the way, it's interesting uh, because, um, well, I mean, even before they get arrested, the, the, Peter's talking about how, you know, he's healed in the name of, of Jesus Christ and that there's no name under heaven that's been given by which people may be saved, right? Uh, so, I mean, Peter is... Peter's all in on the name, uh, all in on, on the power of the name, uh, of Christ. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's power. Um, yeah. In my book, hostile witnesses, I, uh, I, uh, found some passages in rabbinical writings where uh, they forbade, uh, uh, the name of Jesus to be whispered over a wound. And hmm. the reason seems pretty obvious that because it were, people were getting healed and Jews were being converted, so they, they wouldn't allow that to happen. And uh, so, I mean, we're talking about something very powerful in Christ's name, just being spoken over a wound. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, amazing stuff. Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting. It, w once you start to see it, you start to see it everywhere. Um, mm -hmm. Luke talks about um, being with Barnabas and Paul and calling them men who have risked their lives, not for Christ, but risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Or hmm. people, uh, when it talks about people, um, not simply calling upon the Lord and they are saved, it says they call upon the name of the Lord. Uh, it, it, like I say, once you, once you start to see the, that, that little turn of phrase, because <laughs> it's, it's such a small thing. Um, you know, one little word kind of inserted instead of just saying, you know, calling upon the Lord, calling upon the name of the of the Lord, um, being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Um, as a matter of fact, this is uh, how they cast out demons, right? They cast out demons in the name of the Lord, <laughs> right? right? It's the name that the demons fear <laughs> yeah. um, because of the power in the name. Um yeah, I mean it's it's yeah. it's fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah, you know, you, you re, uh, I'm reminded in Book of Acts with the um, seven sons of Sceva, the Jewish uh, oh, yeah. exorcist who tried to use Jesus's name to exorcise. They tried to use it as a magic trick, basically. Yeah, yeah, and it, to and it backfires literally. 
mean, they end off running off naked. But yeah, uh, enough. There was yeah, a uh, there was a band yeah, by the way in the the late '90s, a Christian uh, sort of alternative band called Black Eyed Skiva, uh, Black Eyed Siva, and uh, they took their name from that passage. <laughs> a little proto Calvinist cool. band, but they were pretty good, man. They were pretty good stuff. That's cool. Um, yeah, it, and that all stems from Jesus. When Jesus worked miracles, unlike uh, um, the Jewish exorcist that would invoke Solomon for their exorcism, or uh, the pagans who would invoke the names of the gods, right? Jesus says, you know, stand up and walk. He commands them first person. And so, you know, it's not surprising that... Uh, you know, the Christians didn't use incantations, right? They're not using the holy name like an incantation, but rather they're invoking the power of Jesus, and he's the one that cures people. Yeah. Yeah, well, and, and you know, being in the name of the Lord, like this is, it's not merely grabbing it off the shelf and using it and waving it like a wand, right? Um, these are, it has to be in you. It has to be a name that you have called upon and been saved by. Um, yeah. uh, it has to be a name that is glorified in you, uh, as St. Paul says a, a couple of different ways, right? That, that he wants to see Christ's name glorified in the people that he's teaching in the Thessalonians and the Corinthians. Um, and actually, it's very interesting, too, um, how often when you read in Paul's uh, introductions— to his letters where he says, you know, I implore you in the name of Christ Jesus to do X, right? Uh, like say, for instance, in Philippians, when he says um, that they should agree upon everything in the name of Christ Jesus. Um, he's even, even in asking people to do things, he's asking in the name of the Lord that, that they agree with one another, right? That they be um, in humility, consider others better than themselves, as he says in Philippians two. He's invoking the name even as a, as he's asking things of his fellow Christians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True. So it it really does premeet the uh, the gospels, or actually the whole New Testament, doesn't it? I I love that when you you point out facts like that, and then the next time you read scripture or you're at mass. It's funny how these things like jump out at you that you just never noticed before. Yeah, yeah. Well, and also when you when you read that, I, I hope that it it gives people a, a more sort of sober sense of of why it's important not to take the Lord's name in vain, right? Uh, because if you start treating His name like it's just you know, an exclamation point when you've stubbed your toe, right? Or if you've, if you just use it as an, you know, a way to, you know, put spaces between words when you're angry. Like, I mean, this is not what the name is for, right? The name, I mean, there's power in the name. And uh, by desensitizing yourself to the name, uh, you know, you're, you're kind of removing yourself. You're being more like the sons of Siva, <laughs> right? right. Um, who's just using it to your advantage when you feel like it. And it's a byword uh, all other times. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a sobering sobering reminder. Uh, that's why, you know, I've said a lot of cuss words in my day, Gary, uh, for various reasons, some justified, some not. But there are certain words that I will not say. <laughs> I don't care how bad it gets, right? Uh, I'm... I mean, think about what you're saying when you say blasphemous cuss words. 
Like if you, I mean, I'm I'm gonna just skirt around it, but when you ask, you know, the, I mean, the worst one I think I can possibly think of is the GD, right? Like think about what you're saying. Think about what you're saying. Think about how you're invoking the name. Um, I mean, it's is that is that what you want to do? You want to bring hell? Is that what you want to do? No. <laughs> no, you want to you want to do things in the name because you are in the name and you want others to be in the name. Um it's not a curse. It's not a curse. Yeah, I thought I read somewhere we should hello be God's name. Yeah. Yeah. We should hollow his name. Um yeah. it, I mean, but even as you're pointing it out, right? Like how many people uh notice that that reference at the beginning of the Lord's prayer is a reference not just to God, but to God's name. Yeah, right. I know. Yeah, I know. That's what I mean. It just kind of pops out of nowhere. Um, yeah, and, you know, how, and of course, you're with the Coming Home Network, and you've probably heard literally hundreds of conversion stories. But especially for non-Christian converts like Jews or Muslims, a lot of them say, uh, especially Jews, the only time they ever heard the name Jesus was a swear word or something yeah. like that. Uh which is, uh, you know, very sad if you think about it. Yeah. Well, um, let's just make sure they don't hear it from, from any of us yeah, that absolutely. way. Absolutely. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Matt, uh, we're coming up on the end of the segment. And as always, I always love hearing about what's cooking at the Coming Home Network and, and the, uh, the Matt and Ken and Kenny show. Uh, give yeah. us an update. Yeah, so we've... Uh, uh, we're going to get cranking back in in the next uh, week or two to finish up a series we've been doing on the Mass, um, comparing our experiences of worship as Protestants with what we've found in the Mass. i got some uh, cool episodes coming up of Coming Home Network Presents. I just did one that I'm hoping we'll release maybe next week on whether or not converts really make the, ba- the best Catholics, because people are always telling converts they make the best Catholics, and the secret is that that's not how we feel about it at all, those of us who are converts. <laughs> but um, but I would encourage people to, if they're going to only go one place, um, head over to chnetwork.org slash unity and join us in our uh, 15 days of prayer for Christian unity because we are invoking, for all the reasons we've talked about this hour, we're invoking the holy name of Jesus um, for the reunion of all Christians. So join us at chnetwork.org slash unity. Awesome, awesome. And uh, yeah, uh you know, great stuff. I, I love going to CH Network um, just as a database of conversion stories and, of course, your shows as well. But uh, especially joining in for Christian Unity because that's the whole reason behind apologetics, right? It's the, yeah, we want we want everybody to be one. Does the Father and Christ are one. Absolutely. Well, well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Thanks as always, Gary. Talk to you soon. All right, Matt. That's Matt Swaim. Check out his stuff, chnetwork.org. And, yeah, join with the uh, the, the prayer for unity. And, uh, man, the show's gone. But coming up next, High Impact Catholic Talk coming at you with the Terry and Jesse Show. Thank you so much for listening. And God willing, we'll be back again tomorrow. Do this thing we call hands on apologies. Bye-bye. Take care.